You got that rocker, MJ in the house, otherwise known as Marty Janetti. You know how we do rocking and roll, starting and strolling, and we're doing it right here on the Rundown Wrestling Network. Keep on rocking. Yeah. But I prefer it when we wildin' Sundress Nothing underneath as we undress You could look in my eyes, see I'm some mess Couple of broken people Trying to complete each other under one breath Don't look in the mirror, look into my eyes When you see your reflection, you see what I like You look good in the morning And you don't even know it Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Summer Sale. My name is Sal. I am your host. And tonight, we take a look at the first pay-per-view in my lifetime that introduced me to professional wrestling. This episode will be about SummerSlam 1991. SummerSlam 1991 took place on Monday, August 26th, which is a little weird, but they that was the style back then, at the Mecca itself, Madison Square Garden. Nine matches were on the main card, one dark match, which we will not talk about. And it was billed as the match made in heaven. And the match made in hell. Speaking of, Vince McMahon himself welcomes us to SummerSlam by screaming in his Vince McMahon voice, It's summertime and the living is anything but easy. We then see fancy graphic package. Uh, Vince promotes a wedding segment and a handicap match for his big double main event, marketed, as I mentioned, the match made in heaven and the match made in hell. This year's SummerSlam, I would say, slowly starting to etch its way into WWE importance. This is coming off of WrestleMania 7, which I feel like they wanted more success for that show, hence why they tried to book it at the LA Coliseum. And this was in a very dangerous place for the WWF. Uh, Hogan's popularity was starting to wean a little bit. It was noticeable. Uh, it will become more noticeable a, a different pay-per-view in 1991, uh, that one being Survivor Series, and then really noticeable at Royal Rumble 92. But for now, I personally think uh, that Hogan was starting to lose a little steam. You wouldn't really know it because they're in Madison Square Garden tonight, and he's still Hulk Hogan, but I'm saying... It's not as loud as it used to be. Now, tonight, 
after the intro, we go to a jam-packed arena. Gorilla Monsoon welcomes us. Gorilla is joined tonight by Bobby the Brain Heenan and Rowdy Roddy Piper. Since this is 1991, I'm sure they will be just as offensive as you could possibly imagine. Match number one, we start the show with a good old-fashioned six-man. The Dragon, the British Bulldog, and the Texas Tornado. Versus the Warlord and Power and Glory. Talk about random people thrown together to get them on the card. Although it does show you how much depth the roster had in 1991, considering you have Ricky Steamboat and the British Bulldog, and Kerry Von Erich in your opener. Also, this match features four people with the first name, The. Ricky Steamboat, at this point, was being marketed as The Dragon. Then, of course, we have The British Bulldog, The Texas Tornado, and The Warlord. By the way, fun fact about The Warlord and Power and Glory. If you told me that the Warlord was part of Power and Glory instead of the Barbarian. I'm sorry, not the Barbarian. Instead, wrong wrong tag team. Instead of Hercules, I would have believed you. And I would have taken it as fact. Despite how many times I've watched this pay-per-view, to me, the Warlord and Hercules are kind of interchangeable in my mind. It is what it is. As we get entrances, Piper says the Texas Tornado is Texas-born, Texas-bred, and by gone, he'll be Texas-dead. Oh, Roddy. You have no idea how right you were. It's worth noting that local tanning salons made a killing off of this match alone. And not just the spray tan, but the money spent on baby oil as well. This match, to its credit for an opener, is pretty fast-paced. Everyone makes sure to get their shit in. The crowd pops when Bulldog goes against the Warlord, because we get big meaty men slapping meat. See? Even in 1991, it's a formula that works. Warlord goes down first when Bulldog hits him with a third running and slightly jumping clothesline. Um, To be honest, this match wasn't bad for a six-man, especially in 91. Really good pace. Uh, Barely any rest holds. So uh, tonight, it seems the British Bulldog came here sober. Next episode, we'll talk about that in a a little bit. Differently. But for now, Bulldog seems attentive. Oh, I can't wait till, I can't not wait till 1992. Mr. Hitman, I'm fucked. Anyway. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Steamboat took most of the heat because nobody, nobody sells like Ricky Steamboat. Uh, Steamboat finally gets the hot tag to the Texas Tornado, uh, who comes in like a wrecking ball. This breaks down and no one knows who's legal, and Steamboat pins Paul Roma after a flying crossbody. 
Um, sure. I, I, I don't care less. Whatever. It was fun. Let's go backstage to the locker room area. AKA, this was filmed probably yesterday in the morning. And let's talk to the Intercontinental Champion. With me now, Intercontinental Champion. Get it right, Mooney. The greatest Intercontinental Champion of all time. History will be made tonight. Excellence of execution versus perfection. Bret Hart versus Mr. Perfect. Well, Bret the Hitman Hart, the Intercontinental Belt says wrestling champion on it. And for you to be a champion, you have to be perfect. You are excellent, but you're not perfect. There's only one Mr. Perfect, and you're looking at him. So, really nice hype promo by Perfect. I enjoyed the simplicity. Um, also, that whistle you heard was not Bill Alfonso. But Perfect's manager at the time, who was the coach. Don't worry, it didn't last long. Match number two, it is your coveted Intercontinental Championship. Mr. Perfect takes on Brett the Hitman Hart. And one of Brett's first really big deal singles matches. I mean, obviously it's for the Intercontinental Championship. Obviously it's on pay-per-view. Obviously it's SummerSlam. Um... But the moment doesn't rattle Brett. He's still Brett. He's still excellent at executing things. Uh, this match is as good as advertised. One of, probably one of my favorite matches, uh, from this entire night. Uh, they go back and forth until Perfect tries to walk out and take the count out. Brett runs after him, and in doing so, Brett grabs Perfect by a singlet and rips the uh, arm strap on it. That was a shoot, and you could tell because Perfect is fucking pissed. And they have to keep cutting away from the close-ups because he's swearing. So, <laughs> you know what, though? It works for this match. Because these two won't stop beating the hell out of each other, and, and they're just out to prove who's better... Um, it really works. It really is a nice touch. Brett, however, I will say this. Brett put, put his work in tonight. He sells his ass off uh, for everything Perfect does to him. And the crowd is there for it. The crowd is with Brett 100%. Not easy to do, especially at Madison Square Garden. You know? These guys are getting over with their work, not their hulking up or crazy running the ropes of... Psycho cokeheadness. Uh, Perfect gets frustrated after a while and gets sick of heart kicking out, so Perfect shoves Earl Hebner. Oh, God, here we go. So after a near fall, Hebner pushes him back and gets in Perfect's face. Ah. <sighs> Somewhere I'm sure a five-year-old Aubrey was watching this and taking notes. Also, we're in 1991, so it definitely could have been one of the first times Hebner started doing that shit. 
Just saying. We're in that window. Anyways, Brett goes sternum first into the turnbuckle, as Brett is one to do. And it looks fantastic, as it usually does. Uh, Perfect hits the perfect plex, but he doesn't get the fingers locked. And Brett kicks out. Now, you have to understand, at this point, nobody kicked out of the perfect plex. Nobody kicked out of the perfect plex. They really protected this finisher. So, for Brett to kick out, crowd lost his shit. Uh, Perfect is once again livid, but his frustration is Brett's window of opportunity. Brett goes through his signature moves. Before we even knew those were his signature moves. Again, 1991. Brett almost locks on the sharpshooter, but Coach jumps up on the apron. Brett goes to get Coach and punches him off the apron. This allows Perfect to kick the middle rope into Brett's nuts. Now, admittedly, I instantly thought that was going to be it for Bret Hart. Not watching it now, obviously, because I've I've watched this pay-per-view numerous times. But originally, when I first saw this, even though it was my first, you know, exposure to wrestling, kicking the rope into his nuts, I thought, oh, that guy's going to lose now. <laughs> Perfect covers, but Brett again kicks out. Now, with Brett laying on the ground, Perfect lifts Brett's legs to kick him in the stomach. However, sadly for Mr. Perfect, Bret Hart catches his kick. Listen to this chant here by this capacity crowd. I can't hear. What are they chanting? Let's go, Brett. Deafening in here. Believe the coach has a broken nose. After the big celebration, Brett gets weird and rips off the rest of Perfect Singlet uh, so Perfect can walk to the back in black trunks like a jobber. Lord Alfred Hayes tries to talk to Brett's parents, but Stu misses his cue, has no idea who the fuck Lord Alfred Hayes is, and doesn't even look at him until their camera time is pretty much over. Right at that point, Stu tries to talk, But Alfred Hayes cuts him off and sends us back to ringside. Holy shit, that was awkward. I'm sorry, Stu, we're out of time. We've got to... Back to you, gorilla. Speaking of awkward, let's go backstage to Mean Gene Oakland. And a really doesn't look healthy, and I feel really bad for this man, Andre the Giant. Andre's joined by the Bushwhackers. Andre's also on crutches. And knowing what I know about Andre's health at this point, this is actually rather sad. We see a video 
of Earthquake attacking Andre the Giant on Superstars a few weeks back. The Bushwhackers talk and make noises, but they don't actually say words. Uh, and Andre promises revenge. So there we go. The Bushwhackers are here to defend the honor of Andre the Giant. Why the Bushwhackers? I don't fucking know. <laughs> Vince probably found humor in them, I guess. I don't know. Match number three, the Natural Disasters, Earthquake and Typhoon, versus the Bushwhackers with Andre the Giant in their corner. Andre on his crutches, slowly, slowly, slowly makes his way down the aisle. Dude, what the fuck, Vince? You really needed him on pay-per-view? You just needed Andre to do this show, right? Like, this poor fucking guy. Anyway. Piper tries to ask Heenan what advice he would give to the Bushwhackers if he was their manager. And Bobby says, if I was their manager, I'd commit suicide. 100% word for word, doesn't miss a beat, doesn't stutter. Oh, things you can't say on TV anymore. The Bushwhackers offense, by the way, consists of basically three Stooges moves. Uh, so for any gatekeepers that want to sit here and say they hate comedy in today's wrestling, please explain the Bushwhackers to me. That's what I thought. The Disasters win pretty easily. After the match, the Disasters try to bully Andre more. But out comes the real knights in shining armor. Out comes the Legion of Doom. Seeing the spiked shoulder pads, Earthquake and Typhoon decide it's not the best time right now. And they slowly leave. As they walk away, Andre hits each of them with the crutch. The disasters tuck tail and leave. Ladies and gentlemen, we are being told Bobby the Brain Heenan has requested this time. We're going to go to Bobby backstage. He has wrangled himself a cameraman. Not sure what this is about, but but let's go to the Brain. Bobby the Brain Heenan is in fact at the Hulk's dressing room door. Come on, dummy. I don't have all day. I'm a busy man. Right here is the dressing room of the WWF champion Hulk Hogan. And I'm going to embarrass him. I'm going to show you what kind of a man he is. Hogan, open the door. I'm a busy man. Wait till you see this. <clears throat> On behalf of the real world's champion, Ric Flair, I would like to challenge you, Hogan, at any time, any place. Who do you think you're embarrassing? You hear me? You wouldn't do that if Ric Flair was standing here. You hear? You hear me? Turn that camera off. Turn that damn thing off. And there it is. There it is. The first time the big gold belt. The belt held by Dusty Rhodes. The belt held by Sting. By Lex Luger. Is on WWF television. Can you imagine the reaction of the WCW brass and Jim Hurd hearing that the, about that belt being on on pay-per-view for the other company. 
Granted, I don't think they were watching SummerSlam. I don't think Jim Hurd knows what a SummerSlam is, but Jim Hurd did have a very publicized fight with Ric Flair about said belt, and to hear about it appearing on the other company's pay-per-view must have drove him fucking nuts. Also, it doesn't help the fact that when we see the belt, Hulk Hogan, which he's not even shown in the video, it's just the door opening, knocks the belt out of his hand, and it just falls to the ground like a piece of trash. So, Hogan, your number one draw in the company still, doesn't even show up for this segment but we still get the visual of that belt falling to the floor like trash. This is the equivalent of I'm going to take a piss on this belt live on pay-per-view. <laughs> Anyways, from there we cut to Macho Man Randy Savage, who's on the hotline tonight. He's talking about how nervous he's going to be when he marries Elizabeth. I can't do it. I'm sorry. If I do it, I won't have a voice for the rest of the show. And plus, my Macho Man impression is subpar. I am the first one to admit that. There are people who do much, much better Macho Man Randy Savage impressions, like Jay Lethal. Uh, Macho Man's nervous. Uh, let's see here. He pretends to be on the Superstar Hotline. Uh, I guarantee you there is no one at the other end of that phone line, and this was recorded five days ago. From there, we go backstage to Sean Mooney. Sean Mooney is with the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase, and Sensational Sherry. Sherry, by the way, cashing in very quickly after her breakup with Savage at WrestleMania 7. Sherry decided to go for the man with the money. So she is now with Ted DiBiase. This is also right before she went through her cougar phase as Shawn Michaels' manager. Tonight, the Million Dollar Man defends the Million Dollar title against his former slave. I'm not kidding. That's what they portrayed it as, Virgil. And let's hear what Ted has to say. Ted DiBiase, we are just moments away from the match for the Million Dollar Belt. I can't wait. And right now I can't help but recall some of the humiliating services you forced your former bodyguard Virgil to perform. For example, you had him clean the fungus from between your toes. <laughs> also, you made him remove the <laughs> dirt from your boots. Not to mention the constant verbal abuse the former bodyguard had to endure. Pick it up. on Virgil's face, well, that look is minute by comparison to the humiliation that you're going to suffer tonight, Virgil, in just a few minutes at the hands of the Million Dollar Man. You come to face the master, to challenge the master in my city, New York City, for my Million Dollar Belt. Well, you better go and cancel all those plans of celebration that you have, and you remember the gutter that I told you I was going to leave you laying in face down. Well, you're in a city full of gutters, so take your pick, Virgil. 
but just to show you that I am not a totally insensitive man, I have left you with one small token, Sherry. Here it is, Virgil! You're a crying towel! <laughs> Match number four, Ted DiBiase defends his own personal million-dollar championship against Virgil. Virgil immediately attacks DiBiase and is beating the hell out of him. Uh, Virgil is wearing Ted out to the point where Ted can't get away fast enough. Ted finally escapes to the outside of the ring for like the fourth time. And he just stays down there. He just stays on the outside. It's at this point that Bobby Heenan comes back to the booth and instantly complains about Hulk Hogan and says Ric Flair about five times just in case you didn't hear it the first time. With Million Dollar Man taking his time on the outside, Virgil tries a slingshot crossbody, uh, but Sherry pulls DiBiase out of the way. So, of course, now it's time for Ted to get his heat. It's at this point that I notice on commentary that Piper's really pulling for Virgil. Like, more than just a babyface commentator would. And then I remembered that's because Piper was kind of mentoring Virgil at this point, because what they wanted was a Rowdy Piper versus Million Dollar Man feud. So Virgil is kind of just there to be like the the go-between. But to Virgil's credit, and maybe it has a lot to do with Piper, I'm sure it does, people were cheering for him in 1991. Not so much any year after that, but still, at this point, people were cheering for him. Uh, Virgil locks Ted in his own million-dollar dream, and then Sherry gets in the ring, and she hits Virgil in the face with her shoe. Right in front of the ref. This match is a DQ six minutes in. Now, that seems a little sus, especially at SummerSlam. Uh, and I'm right, because Howard Finkel confers with the ref, and Howard Finkel announces the ref has every right to disqualify Ted DiBiase for the interference by Sensational Sherry. However, the referee has made a judgment call, and even though he could disqualify Ted DiBiase... He has used his discretion and has decided not to disqualify Ted DiBiase. And instead, the match will continue, but Sensational Sherry is ejected from ringside. Remember back then? Remember when refs were perfectly capable of making that call on their own and we didn't need a bullshit WWE official to come out there and tell them that. Remember that? It's a long time ago. In fact, to be fair, this totally could have been Jack Tunney walking uh, out from the back and being like, now wait a minute, Howard! Uh, But thank God they didn't do that. They let the ref make his own call. I like that. Um, unfortunately for Earl, he pays for it by getting crushed in the corner by both guys. Uh, then DiBiase yells at Piper ringside to watch this. 
DiBiase then hits a vertical suplex. And then he hits another one. And then he hits a third. And then DiBiase yells at Piper to watch this again, and he hits a pile driver, which I admit, pretty good, pretty good. DiBiase is Virgil laid out, but the ref is still down. So DiBiase kicks Earl in the back of the head a couple times just to keep him down. Like, legit winds up and is just, like, stomping on him. <laughs> I'm kind of all for it, I'm not going to lie. DiBiase removes the turnbuckle pad and picks up a half-dead Virgil. DiBiase slaps him a few times, talks a bunch of trash, see, you were with me, but now you're nothing. He grabs Virgil by the head, charges to the corner, but at the last second... Virgil reverses it, and it's the million-dollar man that eats the turnbuckle. Both men go down, but the ref gets up and starts counting. At the count of seven, Virgil starts crawling to his feet, and at the count of eight, DiBiase gets himself up. However, not for long... DiBiase falls back down. Virgil crawls over to DiBiase, who seems to have just collapsed from the, I guess from the, you know, he's supposed to be all dazed and woozy and stuff from the turnbuckle. Anyway, he's out. Virgil gets one arm across DiBiase. Earl gives us that oh-so-classic dramatic slow count, and we have a new million-dollar champion. Piper creams his pants. Bobby complains. And Gorilla seems to want to move on. And we do move on. We go backstage to Gene Oakland. This time, Gene is with New York City's finest and the Mountie. The Mountie talks down to the New York City police officers, and he demands that they don't go easy tonight on the boss man. He doesn't want them to do it the New York City way. He wants them to do it the Mountie way, and he wants them to drag his ass off to jail. Let's go down to ringside for this incredible encounter. Match number five, a jailhouse match. The big boss man versus the Mountie. The loser will spend the night in a New York City jail cell. It's the American police from Cobb County, Georgia, versus the Royal Mounted Canadian Police from Montreal, Quebec. Now, this match is not one of those five-star classics like Perfect and, and Bret Hart had. <laughs> this match is a lot of punching, just back and forth. Um, during this, Piper and Heenan make bad jokes about going to jail. At one point, Jimmy Hart annoys Bossman to the point of distraction, so Bossman goes after Jimmy on the outside, and Mountie shoves Bossman into the steel steps. Mountie then gets a bunch of heat on Bossman, until Mountie screws himself over. 
He tells Jimmy Hart to distract the ref. Jimmy does, so Mountie goes and gets a shock stick from behind the ref's back, and he goes to shock the boss man, but he misses. Boss man was on the ground. Mountie shoves the stick down, and boss man rolled out of the way, so Mountie shocked the mat. Not kidding, that's a thing that happened. And then... <laughs> boss man uppercuts the Mountie in the jaw... And the shock stick goes comically flying out of his hands. Now I'm thinking that Mountie is that boss man's gonna grab the shock stick and hit Mountie with it, but no no no, he hits the boss man slam. But he's so tired and beat down that he's late making the cover, and Mountie kicks out at two and a half. Mountie goes for a pile driver, but Bossman blocks it and turns it into an Alabama slam for the win. That was sudden. Crowd pops huge, though. And Jimmy Hart throws a very nice, very 90s temper tantrum as New York City's finest and the Bossman handcuff Jock and drag his ass off to jail. So much so that we go backstage, we follow the Mountie as he's getting dragged off, and we see him get tossed into the paddy wagon. <laughs> oh, good stuff. Especially, you know what, I will give credit where it needs to be given. Uh, Mountie's acting in this is phenomenal. It's everything you want your, your chicken shit heel to be. It really is. <sighs> But we'll hear more from the Mountie in just a little bit. Mean Gene is in the locker room. Before he can explain why, DiBiase and Sherry storm in and scream their heads off for 30 seconds and then storm out. That was uh, not necessary. From there, let's go to Sean Mooney, who is with the new Intercontinental Champion. Brett talks about how good he is. And that he really is the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. Then we go back to Gene, who is now joined by the Natural Disasters. Oh, and Jimmy Hart. Jimmy, by the way, whines and cries about the Mountie. And then Earthquake whines about LOD. This must be intermission because we're doing back-to-back-to-back-to-back promos right now. We go to Sean Mooney, who is magically with the big boss man. He makes another horrible jailbird joke, and then he brags about beating the Mountie. We go back to Gene again, who tries to get a word with Macho Man, but Savage is still on the hotline. Call the hotline! Gene then mentions maybe he'll go talk to Elizabeth, and Savage all of a sudden is paying attention. And he's like, wait, wait, do you think you're going? No, 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 you're not doing that. In fact, you're going to stay right here with me. Finally, after all that, we go back to ringside so Bobby can try to convince us that Sid is going to be a bad special guest referee. Gorilla interjects, but only so we can get live footage of Mountie being dragged into the precinct. Mind you, screaming his head off like a bitch. Back to Sean Mooney again, who's with Jimmy Hart and the Tag Champs, who happen to be the Nasty Boys at this point. And Nasty Boys claim that they're going to beat up the Legion of Doom. 
Yeah, good luck with that. While we talk to the Nasty Boys, Sean Mooney interjects and says, Jimmy, we've got new footage from the precinct. You're going to want to see this. We go back and we see the Mountie get tricked into getting his mugshot taken. And then upon seeing this, Jimmy Hart goes full Muppet and starts freaking out that they are not allowed to take the Mountie's picture. I'm talking arms flailing, screaming at the top of his lungs like a coked-out Kermit the Frog. Gene is with the Legion of Doom. They promise to beat the living shit out of the Nasty Boys. I believe it. And then we go back to the precinct where they are trying to fingerprint the Mountie. Now, this is one of my favorite parts of this whole Mountie bit. Because they demand he give them his finger so that they can fingerprint him. And he says, you want the finger? There's the finger! And he flips them off. To which they grab his finger and bend it back and force him to get fingerprinted. And when they do it, he goes, ouch! It's cheesy. It is. I'll admit it. I'll be the first one to say it's wicked cheesy. But I did laugh out loud, and it's probably just because of Jock's acting. (sighs) Sorry, I thought we were done. We're not. Let's go to Sergeant Slaughter in his Triangle of Terror. Slaughter guarantees victory. Iron Cheek, who will play the role of Colonel Mustafa tonight, says something about America and Hulk Hogan. And General Adnan says nothing. Then Mean Gene is with tonight's special guest referee, Sid Justice. Sid promises nothing except that tonight, justice will be served. Since all of that's done and intermission's over, we can go back to the ring for match number six, WWF Tag Team Championship match, the Nasty Boys versus the Legion of Doom. Um, This match, much like the last one, is a complete brawl. This time with double the brawlers. Bobby then hits the line of the night this during this match, or is it the lie of the night? I wouldn't be surprised when the Nasty Boys get done beating L.O.D. if they don't go down to the jail and bust the money out. I would be surprised. Why don't you go down and bail them out if you're so concerned? You say bail them out, bust them out. I heard what you said. Well, I don't care if the money stays there or not. It's none of my business. I'm that kind of a guy. I live a live. Anyways, Animal gets the hot tag and cleans house. Then, of course, all all four men end up brawling. And with the ref distracted, nobody knows who's legal, but it doesn't matter. Jerry Sags hits Animal in the back of the head with a motorcycle helmet. Nobs makes the cover, but Animal manages to kick out. Hawk swipes the helmet from Jimmy Hart. And he hits Nobs and knocks him out. And then he hits Sags in the back of the head. And then they finish off Sags with a doomsday device. And we have new... WWF Tag Team Champions. Now let's put this into perspective. Hawk and Animal, the Road Warriors, winning the tag titles at Madison Square Garden, coming over from the NWA for so many years. 
One of the biggest draws in the 80s that Vince could never get. And he puts the belts on them at SummerSlam in the garden. To me, this is the equivalent of present-day Cody Rhodes returning to WWE with his uh, American Nightmare entrance. This this was it. This was Vince putting his stamp of approval on Legion of Doom and, and anointing them. Sadly, there's a lot of people who think this was the peak of their WWF career. Because although they would win Tag Team Gold again... It's kind of all downhill from here. But there's no need to get into that because we're going to talk a lot about that next episode. Match number seven in what you could call a filler match. IRS versus Greg Valentine. IRS freshly signed from WCW where he was Michael Wall Street. And he was part of the York Foundation. So they took Irwin in a suit. Well, I'm sorry. They took Mike Rotunda in a suit. And they evolved it. And now they made him a tax accountant for the IRS. And a crooked one at that. Um, Irwin even gets mic time. And he calls the fans a bunch of tax sheets. And they're all going to pay real soon. Boy. They really, really tried with this gimmick. You're a bunch of tax cheats. Irwin, by the way, uh, still not exactly understanding how to be a shitbag heel who looks like a professional accountant. Still sporting the rat tail. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't scream tax accountant. It screams 1984. <laughs> uh, luckily, he does get rid of the rat tail pretty soon. But for now, it, you know, rat tail and this gimmick. Uh, during this match, Gorilla says Jake the Snake Roberts and The Undertaker have been spotted backstage. <gasps> and they are not scheduled on tonight's card, and Gorilla seems suspicious. He should be. Now, within the first few minutes, Hammer locks in the figure four, but IRS is too close to the ropes. And that doesn't stop Gorilla and Piper from saying, I don't think he can make it to the ropes, only for IRS to make it within two seconds after he said that. Womp womp. Hammer goes for the figure four again, and IRS locks Valentine in a really crappy small package for the win. The match was less than seven minutes. And most of those seven minutes was Greg Valentine warming up. <laughs> Let's go backstage again. This time Gene is with Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior. I have no idea when this was taped. As far as time of day goes, but uh, let's take a listen to what they have to say. With me right now, the ultimate warrior, Hulk Hogan. Tonight, gentlemen, the match made in hell as you 
face Sergeant Slaughter and Company, the Triangle of Terror. Well, you know something mean, Gene. The battleground of Madison Square Garden is the only appropriate place for the match made in hell to happen, brother. Ever since January 23rd, 1984, I've been waiting for a feeling. I've been waiting for a rush like I had when I won the WWF title and changed the course of wrestling history in the WWF. And now, I've got that same feeling. I've got that same emotion. And I also realize, brother, that if we don't wipe out Sergeant Slaughter and his core tonight in the match made in hell, wrestling history in the WWF could also change again. You know, speaking of hell, here's a man who has virtually gone through hell in recent weeks, the ultimate warrior. Are we loaded down, Hulkster? Loaded, bro. Loaded down, ready to go down into the pit. One strike from a cobra is not enough to hold back the force of Hulkamania and the power of warrior wildness. We will not come by tank or by air, but we'll walk side by side and leave four footsteps behind as all the warriors and Hulkamaniacs jump on our backs. Prepare yourselves to go down to the coop of War of Wildness and Hulkamania. Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior walk in this battle to leave as we walk in as the same. Ah. We've got momentum, Mean Gene. The bite from the cobra. Don't you realize, Sergeant Slaughter, the toxins most mortal men can't handle. Just inspired. Just put more gas on the fire of the warriors. And all the little Hulkamaniacs know that tonight is just as important as hanging on to the WWF title. Sergeant Slaughter, you and your core are doomed, brother. And what What's you gonna, gonna do when the Hulkster and the ultimate warrior destroy you! Now, if you are not familiar with the story going into this night, please allow me to shed some light on the situation. Because tonight will be the last time anyone sees the Ultimate Warrior in the WWF for almost 10 months. So there was an incident involving the Ultimate Warrior and Vince McMahon. Uh, Supposedly, as the story goes, a couple weeks prior to the event, Warrior wrote a letter to Vince threatening to no-show the pay-per-view unless he was paid the $550,000 that he claims he was owed from WrestleMania 7. Now, no one knows if he was really owed that money, but I'm assuming that's what Hogan got paid, and Warrior already made it very clear from when he won the title he wanted to get the same money Hogan was getting. In 2005, Hulk Hogan and Sergeant Slaughter, on that infamous the self-destruction of the Ultimate Warrior DVD, uh, claimed that they approached Vince about dealing with the matter physically, and they were going to break Warrior's leg during the match. However, Vince didn't want that on his show and advised Hogan and Slaughter against it. Now, I don't know if that's true or if that's just Hogan and Slaughter trying to look tough all those years later. But regardless, Vince paid the warrior the money. 
before before the night started, before the pay-per-view started, Vince paid the Ultimate Warrior the money. And the second that Warrior came back through the curtain, Vince fired him on the spot. In fact, Vince McMahon, also on that infamous DVD, says he could not wait to fire him as soon as he came backstage. Warrior himself was not present in the post-match celebration. And Warrior, who had been booked in a feud with Jake Roberts going into the event, uh, was quickly replaced as Jake's opponent for the next few months by Macho Man Randy Savage. Now, that being said, I think the Savage... Uh, Jake feud was one of my favorite feuds of all time, but they had put a lot of time into Savage, I'm sorry, into Warrior and Jake, and they, it doesn't matter, they immediately discarded it, because, (laughs) so instead of having a feud that can make you more money with Jake Roberts going into the, the fall and the winter... Warrior decides to get selfish and gets his ass fired. I hope that 550000 lasts you, dude. Somehow, I don't think it will. In fact, Warrior in that promo says one strike from a Cobra was not enough to take down the Ultimate Warrior. Yeah. Too bad we never actually got to see what was going to happen with that. I'm assuming Warrior was going to win the feud, but still. It's one of those mysteries. For some reason, the WWE had a lot of booking issues in the early 90s. Probably has to do with steroids. Speaking of steroids, let's go to our match made in hell. Match number eight, Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior versus Sergeant Slaughter, the turncoat, General Adnan, and the Iron Sheik, uh, Colonel Mustafa. The Triangle of Terror. When Hulk Hogan comes out, and he, by the way, is the last one to come out, it's only then that we see Vlad, the super, the super fan, sitting first fucking row right at the corner of ring entrance side. Like, dude, not only was it remarkable that this dude was at every event, he was in the best seats in the fucking house for every event. Good God. I just... You know what? Good for him, man. Because if I was Vlad's age, when, when, in 1991, like in my mid-20s or whatever, or even like early 20s, and, and... I somehow got that opportunity, I would have taken advantage of it too. Seriously, man. What a fucking show. Like, what a gig. You know what I mean? Like, you get, you get those seats pretty much every show, no matter where they, they're going. Still fucking blows my mind. Uh, the legend, by the way, is that Vlad tried to get show tickets to like a sold out show and couldn't. He wrote a letter to Vince McMahon and Vince felt touched by the letter, so gave him like free seats for the rest of his life. Something like that. 
But anyway, good on him. Oh, did I mention Sid Justice is the referee for this match? Because commentary can't stop talking about it. At one point, Slaughter grabs a leather belt from Adnan. But Sid takes the belt out of his hands and throws it away. Sid then makes a face of Slaughter that looks like, Not my house. Not in my house. Hogan and Warrior then beat up Slaughter for like five straight minutes. And I slowly start to realize that General what the fucks his face and Shiki Baby are too fucking old and decrepit to go. Oh, that's why they're not tagging in much. Oh, for fuck's sake. Why did they have to choose these two to be Slaughter's muscle? Couldn't you have picked, like, Warlord and, and fucking Hercules? Like, the, these two, these two were so fucking out of shape at this point. And granted, I know that General Adnan was in AWA and was a wrestler and a manager for a long time before SummerSlam 91. But he's got no fucking business in a goddamn main event match. Not in 1991, and neither does the Iron Sheik. Speaking of which, Sheik hits Hogan with one, one of his gut wrench suplexes, uh, and it looks like it was all Hulk, and then locks in the camel clutch. Piper <laughs> accurately says, I remember this in 1984. Trust me, I get it. It's the Sheik. Wink, wink. I, yeah, we all get it. Thanks. Warrior comes in and breaks it up, and from there we get our classic tag match where Hogan takes all the heat from Slaughter, mostly. Uh, the only time the other two are tagged in are for, like, quick eye rakes and, like, headlocks, and then they immediately go back out to Slaughter. Also, I will give Hogan credit where credit is due. Hogan, even though it was comical at the time, can sell. I know Hogan's selling was a, was a little bit over the top. Uh, he would kind of crawl around and just make weird grunts and noises. And like, please, like, please, please, brother. <clears throat> but at least he could sell, unlike the Ultimate Warrior, who barely even tried. Uh, speaking of Warrior, Warrior clotheslines Slaughter like eight times and then accidentally runs into Sid Justice. Sid, by the way, doesn't even flinch. And then this allows Slaughter to take control. So Slaughter gets some heat on Warrior and then Warrior completely, completely fucks up the hot tag spot. He starts his Warrior comeback like he's in a singles match and then, I'm not kidding you, throws himself to the ground and is like, oh, my back. Ah. And then very awkwardly crawls over to Hogan to make the tag. It was atrocious. It was as if Warrior remembered that he wasn't in a singles match. and was like, oh, fuck, shit. I got to get the hot tag. And then just, like, threw himself to the mat. <sighs> 
So, Warrior makes the not-so-dramatic hot tag to Hulk Hogan. Hogan cleans house. All five men are in the ring. Warrior goes outside, grabs a steel chair, and he instantly starts chasing after Mustafa and Adnan, who run to the back, and Warrior follows them. And as the story goes, that's when Vince fired him. I mean, you try to fucking blackmail somebody into paying you $500,000, you're kind of a piece of shit and kind of deserve to get fired. What did he think was going to (sighs) happen? And then we never saw Jim Helwig again. Clearly, because the guy who shows up at WrestleMania 8 was was a fake. He was the second Ultimate Warrior. Yeah. Yeah, there was a rumor back in the day that the original Ultimate Warrior died from steroid abuse. And that they had to get a guy to replace him at WrestleMania. <laughs> that was a thing. Now, I don't know why that was a thing. But uh, there was a lot to go into that. People thought he didn't really look like he did. Um, in 91, when he came back at WrestleMania 8, his hair was a different color. His face looked different. I, I'm not buying any of that. I think people just wanted to make up a, a story that they thought was cool. Uh, but, but I will say that the fact that there was a rumor in the 1990s that lots of retro fans I've talked to have heard it, have heard about, um, I mean, that proves the power of that rumor because it wasn't like there was an internet back then. Anyway. Uh, so Sid is this entire time paying more attention to Warrior and the other two who just ran backstage. So this allows the babyface Hulk Hogan to take a fucking fistful of powder, like baby powder, and he throws it in Slaughter's eyes. Again, babyface. Hulk then hits the leg drop, and Justice makes the cover, and Hogan wins. Now, we all know at this point that Hulk Hogan was far from a white meat baby face. Um, but it just seemed like, why why did he have to go to the salt? It, it was one-on-one. He couldn't just punch Slaughter three times, hit the big boot, follow up with a body slam, and then hit the leg drop? <laughs> uh, you could argue that this was payback. Because two months ago, after WrestleMania 7, Slaughter threw a fireball into Hogan's face. Sure. But again, this wasn't a fireball. They didn't talk about that on commentary. And it just it comes off as Hogan's a shitbag. Which, I mean, what else is new? But it probably didn't help with the Hogan fatigue. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's probably a lot of people that were like, wait a minute. Ah, that's kind of messed up. Hogan poses, because Hogan poses. And then he waves to the back. And he's calling someone out. Oh, this must be the warrior. He's calling the warrior to come back out. Uh, no. No, no. Instead, Sid Justice sticks his head through the curtain. And uh, he, has, he mouths the phrase into the camera, Me? This is so fucking stupid. Justice comes down, looking all confused. 
Hogan rips the referee tank top off of Justin's body. Justice, instead of being mad, seems intrigued. Where is this going? <laughs> oh no, my shirt ripped. Anyway. Uh, Hogan then convinces Sid Justice that they should pose together. They do. They do the hand thing to the air for the fans. They pose to all four corners. I gotta tell you, watching this now, it makes me think that this was Vince's fuck you to the, to the federal government because it was right around this time that George Zahorian was convicted of illegally supplying anabolic steroids. <laughs> His trial, I think, started in 89 or 90, but this was right around now where he was convicted. And it's almost like Vince being like, fuck you, I'm still going to do what I want. <laughs> it's, just, it's such a blatant, like, go fuck yourself, federal government, in my mind, at least. Uh, it just came off as Vince does not give a flying fuck, and he's going to have even more jack guys. I mean, there's proof of that. Look at the WBF. But whatever. Uh, after the posing, we take one final look at the Mountie. He is in a holding cell, screaming his head off. The holding cell is large enough where there's some other people in it. Uh, some drunk guy tries to pick a fight with the Mountie. And Mountie basically tells him to fuck off. But in different words. And then a big dude comes out of nowhere. And the Mountie is really scared. And it gets really quiet. But then the big dude starts talking. And you realize he's supposed to be gay dude. And he asks, because there was a way of doing that back in the 90s. Where you would change someone's voice to be very effeminate. And that meant that they were gay. Not kidding. That's a thing. Um, and Mountie gets really, really scared because the big gay dude says, don't you just love the way leather feels against your skin? And then Mountie freaks out and Gorilla and Piper laugh and they laugh and they laugh because homophobia is funny. <sighs> when we go back to the <laughs> the desk. Uh, Gorilla and Piper then make veiled comments about what Mountie is in store for. It's hilarious, I tell you. Absolutely hilarious. Let's go to another video package, this time of Randy Savage taking 25 minutes to ask Elizabeth to marry him. Um, it, it, it's like at one point that the tape gets stuck. And Dubstep Savage just says Elizabeth nine times in a row. Uh, fun fact, by the way, these two were married in real life since 1984. And sadly, they would divorce in real life in 1992. But anyways, for the purpose of kayfabe, uh, Elizabeth accepts Randy's proposal by saying, Oh, yeah. We then get a music video of Savage and Liz. It is, and I'm not kidding you, and this is me saying this, the cheesiest song I've ever heard in my life. It's like Discount Store Brian Adams. It's bad. 
It's really bad. It's it's not the song that plays when Savage walks down to the down the aisle in a few minutes that everybody knows. It's just the song for the video package, and it is atrocious. The chorus of this song actually is, I'm going to show you how much I love you. That's not catchy. In fact, now that I think about it, this might be written by Jimmy Hart. It definitely has that feel, especially lyrically. Uh, Let's go back to the arena, and Savage makes his way down the ring. Savage in a gorgeous, to be honest, white and gold tuxedo. Cowboy hat and frills to match. Bobby makes one joke about what kind of blue light special dress Liz got on clearance, and Piper legit flips his fucking shit and screams at Bobby that if Bobby tries to ruin this wedding, he will slap the living shit out of him. He says snot, but almost word for word exactly what I just read. I'll slap the living snot out of you. But he says it in a way like he's literally choking him. Uh, then, <laughs> in classic Bobby fashion, for the next five minutes, Bobby keeps making these quick little comments under his breath, and Piper and Gorilla takes turns threatening his well-being. I swear to God, Brain. I swear to God, I'll choke you myself. All right? I will. Uh <laughs> Bobby sneaks one in about the ring bearer really being a midget. His words, not mine. (laughs) Gorilla threatens to have him removed. Uh, Liz makes her way down to the ring. And uh, to be honest, Liz looking a lot like Princess Diana. I wonder if they have the same dress. Or at least a similar style. Uh, If you don't know who Princess Diana is, look it up. It's tragic. It really is. They ask Savage if he does... And he hesitates just for a second, just to look around the arena, so the arena goes fucking ballistic. But then, of course, he says, oh, yeah. Then we reverse the the asking of the people. <laughs> and Liz doesn't answer with, I do, or, oh, yeah. She just says, I will. After that... After they do the I do's, they recite their vows to each other that sound like they were written during the Crusades. I'm dead serious. Um, it's like a lot of old English, and they must have done this as just a rib, but uh, it's weird. Uh, finally, the priest announces them as husband and wife, and he doesn't even ask for objections. What kind of fucking wrestling wedding is this? Instead, Randy Savage kisses Elizabeth and balloons and streamers fall from the garden ceiling as pomp and circumstance plays. Yay, a wedding that actually goes as planned and didn't get interrupted. They uh, ham this up for a little bit and then we go off the air. Now, fun fact... On the Coliseum home video, they kind of retcon this a little bit, and we go to bonus footage of Savage and Liz opening up presents in the back, and they get to this one present, and Liz lifts the lid off the box, and inside is a cobra. 
and Savage and Liz screams and Savage pulls her back and and they both like run out of the room and the camera just focuses in on the Cobra. <sighs> I wish they found a way to add that to the live broadcast. That would have and I granted they didn't have it planned. Obviously they had to scramble when when Moria got fired, but that actually really nicely kicked off that feud between Savage and 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 Jake. Anyway, this SummerSlam was a lot of fun. I'm gonna be honest. I was not terribly a fan of the past few SummerSlams. You know, 89 was okay. Everybody talks about it like it was the best thing ever just because Shivani was there. It was alright. It was good. It was solid. But this one, to me, was the first time that I felt that it was a lot of fun. Now, obviously, for me, as a kid, this had so many things going on that this is 100% why I fell in love with professional wrestling. There's just so many different characters, and they were all larger than life, and everybody was funny or charismatic or dramatic. It was just, God, man, I will never forget how, like, engulfed I was by this this new uh, entertainment. I just, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. This was incredible. This wasn't like, oh, he sits in a headlock for 20 minutes. No, like, this was fun. Imagine as a kid, as a nine-year-old kid, not even, I was eight at the time. Imagine seeing this and, and how much it could captivate your, your imagination. And that is what the WWF sold to many, many people ever since Vince took over. Even throughout the years of people complaining in the 2000s and they said Vince lost his fastball. Dude, what, what they give to a little kid is like wonder. And it's, it's so fucking cool when it, when it's done by the WWE as opposed to anybody else. Now, I'm not saying that other places can't do wrestling. I'm just saying production value wise and, and moment wise and like larger than life wise, there's nothing like the WWE or the WWF in 1991. Now, that being said, they will try to top themselves next year in Wembley Stadium. But that's for a different episode. Thank you, everybody, for listening to me tonight. You can follow me at WrestleMania Sal, and you can listen to the rundown every week wherever you get your podcast from. I have nothing else to say for this episode, so I will just say I will see you next time. But I prefer it when we wildin' Sundress Nothing underneath as we undress You could look in my eyes, see I'm some mess Couple of broken people Trying to complete each other under one breath Don't look in the mirror, look into my eyes When you see your reflection, you'll see what I like You look good in the morning And you don't even know it
have been listening to a Rundown Wrestling Network production. Please visit rundownwrestling.com for all of our shows, as well as our other special events. Keep it locked there, or subscribe to the Rundown Wrestling Network on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, Stitcher Premium, or anywhere you get your podcast from. Leave us a voice message that we will play on an episode by going to anchor.fm slash rundownwrestling slash message. Join our Patreon at patreon.com slash rundownwrestling. You can show us how much you love us by buying us a cup of coffee for just one buck at ko-fi.com slash rundownwrestling. Go to reddit.com slash r slash rundownwrestling. Follow us on Twitter at Rundown Network. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash rundownwrestling. Email the show your dick pics and twat shots via rundownwrestling at gmail.com. Or go to Instagram or YouTube and look for Rundown Wrestling. Follow us on Twitch by going to twitch.tv slash rundownwrestling. And you can also follow our host Adam on twitch.tv slash the saleser effect. This has been a Rundown Wrestling Network production. <laughs>